Amen. <clears throat> Amen. If you have elementary age kids or below, we love them to be a part of what we have happening with our Vine Kids Ministry, uh, middle school, five, six, seven, eight, in that range, right out there in the foyer. We've got stuff, y'all's age group as well. Vine Kids can go out these side doors, big squeezes and hugs. Excellent. You know, they've spent the whole weekend together. I know that. Um, still can't wait to see each other. Um, you know, it's a remarkable thing um, how Scripture continues to speak directly to us at different moments in our life. Um, I can read an encounter or a story or a verse or a passage one time and, and have God speak to my heart in one way, and I can read it <clears throat> again, the same exact passage, and have the Holy Spirit speak in a very different way. And that's kind of been what's happened over the past four weeks to me. And in the past four weeks, we've sort of methodically moved through this miracle encounter, this thing that's supposed to be about the raising of Lazarus. We've actually explored from all its different angles, and we've looked at how Jesus has shown up in these incredible personal interactions, both with the, or with the disciples and with Martha, and then last week with Mary. We've watched all those interactions surround that, and I've seen myself in that picture in so many different ways. And what we've explored over the past few weeks is kind of what these interactions mean for us, the sort of authentic personal nature that Jesus has with those that he loves, with creation. And we're going to end up getting to the miracle of that. So we've been kind of looking uh, the past four weeks at this, this section of text that's known for its miracle, but we've been looking at the onset pieces all around it. And uh, they're really powerful. And Lord has spoken to me in very different ways in each of those. And sort of happened again this week. I was all prepared to really talk about the incredible miracle that we're going to see as Lazarus' dead heart springs to life, right? Because there's obviously a lot there. But I'm going to get hung up in the peripheral again, because the things around it are, are, like we've seen, are really, really amazing. So those of you that are here for the first time, or maybe haven't been here in a while, we've been walking slowly through the Gospel of John. We started just over a year ago. We're into week 44. We've taken a break here or there, but we're in week 44, and we've gone from verse 1 all the way into the middle and finishing up chapter 11, and we've sort of explored John's Gospel from the perspective of the Incarnation, that John's Gospel is not... Um, his desire is not that we would know that Jesus was a historical figure that walked the earth, but John wants us to know that Jesus was actually the Son of God, that he is the God in the flesh, that he has come into this world, and that he will die for humanity. John wants us to know that Jesus is God, which makes, of course, my goal incredibly simple as a teacher, preacher, is that I want you to just see Jesus, which is kind of what well, my goal is all the time anyway, so it fits perfectly within that context. And, and so we look at it from that angle. Everything that John does is pointing us to the incarnation, the picture of God made flesh, the divinity of Christ. And, and we're going to see that on the full display today. And then we're going to begin the journey that's going to lead us into the last week of the life of Christ over the next couple of weeks. And then we will be, the rest of John's gospel will actually all take place in the context of about five days, which is, is pretty cool. So just by way of kind of reminding you where we are, chapter 11 really starts with Jesus learning that his good friend, who he loved dearly, was sick and ultimately learns that he has died. Jesus had this deep love relationship with Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. You may know those names from other places in Scripture. Jesus has this really special relationship with them, and he learns that Lazarus is sick, tells the disciples that Lazarus won't 
end in death. Lazarus ultimately dies, and Jesus begins to head that way. And then a couple of weeks ago, we saw him have this powerful interaction with Martha where she comes to Jesus, and she basically says, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. She believed that if Jesus would have showed up, he could have saved her brother from dying. And Jesus has this incredible interaction with her where he basically says, look, I am the resurrection and the life. Martha, do you believe this? And she says, yes, of course, I believe this. You are the Christ, the Son of God. And we explored that whole thing. And then she goes in and she finds her sister Mary, who's still at the house. And she says, Mary, the teacher, Jesus, he's asking about you. And Mary at once gets up and she runs out to where Jesus was. And this says she falls at her feet and says the exact same thing. Lord, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And last week we saw that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and he wept with her and he wept with those mourners that were with her. Um, and then he asked her to stand up and take him to the place where they had laid the body. And that's what we're going to pick up this week. He's had these incredible emotional encounters with, both, with the disciples and with, with both Mary and Martha. And now they are leading him to the actual tomb where Lazarus' body is laid. And we're going to see the interactions that happen around that. And we're going to see the miracle itself. And it's, it's a really powerful picture. And I think that God is, is continuing this movement of his sovereignty, right? and his glory on full display, but, but more so, he's showing us the authority that's been given to Jesus. And we're going to look at how that plays a role even in our own understanding of our, in our, understanding of our own salvation this morning. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to chapter 11, and we are going to be in verse, oh, how about 38 through 45. We're going to look at those this morning as we wrap up this specific miracle. So before we do that, let's go to the Lord and pray. Let's ask that, that he would teach our hearts, that he would reveal truth to us. Let's, let's just go before the Lord. God, I'm grateful for your word. It is timeless, it is authoritative, and it is true. Lord, we know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you, and so we don't take it lightly this morning. This is not some guidebook for our life. It is the very breath of God, the Theopunesto, spoken to us. That it is true and it is right. And so, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would reveal truth to us this morning as we talk about it, as we unpack it. That you would speak to our hearts in places that we need to be spoken to. That you would convict us where we need to be convicted and empower us where we need to be empowered. Lord, encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Take a moment in your own heart, just as you sit here this morning before we open the word, and just ask the Lord as we do each week to teach your heart. Whatever he needs to say to you, just ask that you would be receptive and that you would hear it. Ask the Lord to teach your heart this morning. Take a moment and pray for somebody beside you, in front of you, behind you. We do this each week. We want to be a church that is in the habit of praying for other people. Everything that unfolds here on Sunday morning is not about you. But we want God to move in the people around you. We want you to desire to see God move in them. So pray for someone, even if you don't know their name. Just pray that the Lord would move in their hearts. Lord, we turn our entire morning over to you. You are the God of the universe. Lord, you are sovereign and you are all-powerful. And you loved us enough to send your son Jesus to give us life. Let us see that truth this morning in this text and teach our hearts. We ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. 
So Jesus has had this really emotional encounter with Mary where she has cried out to him and said, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Jesus is deeply troubled, which we'll talk about again in a moment. He weeps with her and with the mourners that have gathered with them, right? And then he basically says, where have you laid him? And she said, come on and I will show you. And that's what we're going to pick up. So they had just basically taken Jesus. So verse 38, Jesus is going to show up at the tomb. Jesus, once more, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, By this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. And then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and then Jesus looked up and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of those people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, Take off your grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, put their faith in him. <clears throat> so we're going to pick up the remainder of what happens in the aftermath next week because, of course, it doesn't go over well with a lot of people, and they're going to go tell the Pharisees, and it's going to lead to more contention, which is ultimately going to lead Jesus to the cross. But Jesus has had this deeply emotional connection in a matter of moments with Mary and Martha, both independently but both the same. They both believe that if Jesus would have been there, he wouldn't their brother wouldn't have died. Right? Jesus has this connection with them. And so Mary falls at his feet. Jesus stands her up. They have this thing where he weeps with her, John eleven thirty five, 35, and with those that came with her. And he says, where have you laid him? And they take, them, they take him there. And they take Jesus to this tomb, which is, you know, very common, actually. A lot of people weren't buried in those days. They were, they were laid in tombs, much like Jesus would be in a few weeks. In a, in a cave or a cut out of a rock, they would lay a body in there and they would roll a giant stone in front of it to keep people and vermin and things out. And so that's where Lazarus had been laid. They had taken him to this place outside of town where there was a cave or a rock cut out where they had taken his body and they had done all the Jewish ceremonial sort of burial rites. They, they had wrapped him in all these linens and spices and covered his face and done all the things that you do with a dead body, right? Much of which Jesus would have done to himself here in a few short weeks. And they laid him in that tomb and Jesus shows up at the tomb and this time Martha has met them there. So it's Mary and Martha, the weeping sisters and all the professional mourners that had come to weep and to mourn with the family. It's a large crowd now that is gathered at the tomb. They've moved out of the house and out of the streets and over to the tomb and Jesus gets there and he says, take away the stone. And Martha, who showed up by now, who has met them there at the tomb, has this statement where she says, but Lord, I don't think you get it. He's been there for four days. If we roll away the stone, there's going to be a terrible odor, which was probably the truest statement of all, right? Like Lazarus had been dead for four days. And Jesus kind of gives her this rebuke, which we'll talk about in a moment, where he says, did I not tell you, right? That if you believe me, you would see the glory of God. And so they roll the stone away. And Jesus, in this sort of 
loud voice calls out to the Father, right? He, he basically says, Father, I know that you hear me. You always hear me. I know that you're going to do what I ask. But I'm saying this, I'm, I'm praying these things for the benefit of everybody who's here and who's listening. Because I want them to believe that you sent me. And so he stands there and says that, and then he calls into the tomb in this loud, clear, authoritative voice, Lazarus, come out. And it says that at once, right, the dead man, and it actually calls him the dead man, stands up and he walks out of the tomb. And his hands and feet were still wrapped in these strips of linen. He still had the grave cloth over his face. And Jesus says, take off his grave clothes, which were strips of linen that were wrapped around the body with the spices, and let him go. Right? And then, of course, many Jews who had come to visit Mary and Martha and those that were there weeping, they saw what Jesus did, and, and they put their faith in him, right? Because this is incredible. So the miracle itself is, is really amazing. I mean, Jesus only raises three people in the New Testament um, from death to life. He does the widow's son, he does Jairus' daughter, and he, he does Lazarus here. And so while this wasn't the first time, it was certainly not something that happened all the time. I mean, it is one of the greatest miracles that we see Jesus do, right? I mean, he brought a completely dead human being from that point of death with no heart beating, body in decay, completely back to life. I mean, it is one of the single great, greatest incredible miracles that we see Jesus do. But what I find myself struck with even more than the miracle itself, which we'll get to, is sort of the circumstances, once again, that surround it because they are really, really powerful. And the first thing that we see, and I'll, I'll lift them kind of out to you so you can see them, happens when Jesus shows up at the tomb. Verse 38, Jesus once again was deeply moved and came to the tomb. Now, in order to understand this, you've got to have, you would have had to have been here with us last week because last week we unpacked this, and so I'll do it again a little bit quickly because I want you to see what is happening here. So we see in verse 38 that Jesus shows up at the tomb, and once again, he is deeply moved. He has this incredible emotional response when he shows up at the tomb. Now, we saw this last week. Jesus is there on the road, and he's waiting, and Mary comes to him, and she throws herself at his feet. And says, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. All of that emotion, all of those tears, all the mourners that followed her out of the house and showed up there weeping and crying. And Mary is calling out to him as she grasps his ankles. Lord, I believe that you are Jesus. And you could have saved my brother and you didn't. And it says that when Jesus saw Mary and those that had come with her weeping, he was deeply moved and troubled in spirit. And what I showed you last week is that that phrase that we get deeply moved is actually a word that borders not on sort of this emotional response of sorrow, but it's actually a Greek word that is, moves to the idea of the harsh anger. That Jesus saw them weeping and he actually was moved to anger or irate. That's how that verse actually translates. And so we started talking about it going, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Because why would Jesus be angry at Mary or the mourners and then one verse later weep with them? Well, the answer is simple because Jesus isn't angry at Mary and he's not angry at the mourners. In fact, that verse, one verse later, he actually is so moved to compassion that he weeps with them. Jesus loved Lazarus and he knows that in a matter of days, Right? All this is going to come to its sort of pinnacle, and he is going to be handed over and crucified. 
But he also knows that that, along with Lazarus, is not going to end in death. But he is deeply moved to the point of anger. So what is Jesus angry at? And what I told you last week is that I believe that Jesus is deeply angry at death. That all of creation, right, has been poisoned by sin. It's been poisoned by sin to the point of spiritual death and physical death and all the hurting consequences that go without that, that go around that. That's not how creation was set up to interact and be with God. And when Jesus sees Mary and the mourners there and they are weeping and broken and he loves Lazarus, I believe that he is so angry at what sin and death has done and he knows that he has come to confront and conquer death in a matter of days that he is brought to a point of being literally moved to anger, that his creation that he loves so deeply is so infected with sin and it has broken this world, which is the very reason that Jesus came to die. And so we get to verse 38 where Jesus shows up at the tomb and once more he is deeply moved. It's the exact same Greek word and structure. So Jesus shows up at the tomb, and he's not mad at the tomb. He's not mad that Martha's come, and now Mary's here, and the people are there with him, and they're mourning. He's not mad that they are weeping. He shows up at the tomb, and he's confronted with the reality of sin and death, and once more, he is moved again to a point of anger. Jesus hates sin and death. Right? And Jesus, being fully God, in one essence with God, hates sin sin and death to the point of it angers his spirit. That this is what we, a creation that was, that was made to walk with him and live in harmony with God, has had sin infiltrate it and break that harmony. And as a result, we have to experience the sting of death and pain and hurt and heartbreak. In fact, we know, and as I mentioned last week, there is a time that will come where Jesus will return and he will restore all things and he will wipe away every tear and there will will be no more hurt or pain or heartache. He will make all things new. We know that that is the end result of Jesus' return and judgment is that there will be a time where we will be in the presence of almighty, eternal, perfect, holy God and we won't experience the sting of pain and death and humanity and hurt And Jesus stands at that tomb watching people that he loved suffer and he was moved to anger. He's going to end up on the cross to die for that exact point. But what we see here in verse 38 is that Jesus is still angry. And it makes us feel uncomfortable to say that, but really, you know what it does for me? It comforts me. I love that my God hates sin and death. I love that the things that break my heart, right? God not only responds with this compassion, but those things of this world, the sin and pain and death, that he hates those and has come to remedy those. That there will be a time where I no longer have to experience loss and the brokenness of this body. And I find it deeply comforting that the God who created me and breathed life into my lungs, hates death and hates sin and hates what has done to the whole of creation. So we see the first thing that Jesus is still angry once more. And so he says in this really powerful voice, you can almost, when you read them together, you can see that. He says, take away the stone. So Jesus moved to this point of anger, right? This point of irate, and he looks at that stone and he tells the people around him, 
take it away. And he says it with a clear and direct authority. And in that moment, Martha says what I believe is on the heart of every person in this room, including myself, way too often. And Jesus is going to offer her a rebuke and he's going to offer her a promise. But she says this. He goes, take away the stone. And she says, but Lord. Which are perhaps the two most debilitating words in all of Scripture when spoken in direct response to the call of God. So he says, take away the stone. And Martha says, but Lord. He's been there for four days. His body is in decay. It's going to smell. This is what Martha's basically saying. I believe that you are God, but I also don't trust that you know what you're talking about in this moment. That's what she's saying. She's basically saying, I believe you, Lord, but I don't believe you are big enough to understand what has really unfolded here. And how many times those words have come across my heart or my lips to the direct call of the Lord to the direct voice of God, to his comforting of my soul, to the way he speaks in my spirit. How many times have I said, but God, meaning I believe you're still God, but I'm not sure I fully still trust you in this moment to know what I'm walking with, dealing with, or sitting in. But Lord. And I think her comment betrays her heart, which is she believed we saw that. She has the most clear and concise and perfect proclamation of who Jesus was. She says, she says, list, Lord, in verse, way back in verse 27, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who has come into this world. So we know that Martha, right, she knows that this is Jesus, and she believes in Jesus. She believes that he's the Son of God, and she believes that he's coming into this world. In fact, she believes that he's the resurrection and the life. And he told her, that God told her to move the stone. And she says, I don't trust you that much in this moment. Which betrays most of us. Because I believe that most of us actually don't really have a problem believing that Jesus is God or that God is real. But most of us have our problems believing and trusting in that God in those moments that we think we know more or know better. Or at least that we know the situation. And Martha's questioning Jesus' ability to know the full situation. I don't think you get it. He's been dead for four days. Martha would rather trust what she knows in this world than the God who made it. And that is me. I would rather trust myself and what I know in this world than the God that made it. Well, Jesus offers her both a rebuke and a promise, right? And in this moment of grief, right, you can hardly blame her. I mean, she doesn't want Jesus to be embarrassed or her to be embarrassed when they roll back that stone and Lazarus is really, really dead. But Jesus offers her a rebuke. Look at what he says. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Now, in that statement, there is both a rebuke and there's a promise. He says, did I not tell you? In other words, I told you, but you don't believe me. So she says, but Lord, we can't move the stone. And Jesus says, did I not tell you already? I told you, but you don't believe me. And that rebuke is really powerful to my heart because those are the things that Jesus has told me, and I don't believe him. He says, but, right? 
but you will see if you believe the glory of God. So he offers this rebuke, and then he couples it with this incredible promise. Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Now, I love this for a couple of reasons. One, this promise, well, this promise is steeped in things that God has already told Martha and Mary. It's not a whole bunch of new things they have to conjure up. He says, look, have I not essentially already told you? All the things that you need to know about me, I have showed you and told you. And I love this because it actually is true. God has showed us himself in all of his glory on full display in his word, and there is nothing that is not there. God has whispered to your heart. He's revealed things to you. He's promised to never leave you nor forsake you, that he won't just let you die, but that he will comfort your soul in times of sorrow, that he will walk with you, and that he will provide for you. These are the promises of God. We don't have to make them up. They have been spoken, and they are clear. And what Jesus is telling Martha is, believe what I have already told you is exactly what Jesus says to my heart. Treb, believe what I have already told you. Time and time again and through my word over and over again, I have made these promises to you and they will never change. Believe what I have spoken to you. That's the rebuke in a nutshell. My word is not change. Believe me. And Jesus says to her, I've told you, but you don't believe me. And that's where the problem is. And that's the problem with my heart. I've told you, Treb, but you do not believe me. So I love that for that reason. But I also love it because of what Jesus promises. That if you believe me, you will see the glory of God. Now, of course, as I've said this a zillion times in here, if you've been coming very often at all or whenever, you would hear me say this. God never promises to give us all the answers. He never promises to make it all better in our understanding and in our ways from a human standpoint. He never promises to just knit it all together and show us all the whys. That's not wrapped in here at all. What he says to Martha is, if you believe me, you will see God's glory. The promise is that if we believe and trust in Jesus, we will see God on full display. What's incredible to me is that in a matter of minutes, maybe even seconds, Jesus is going to do the single most incredible thing. He's going to bring the dead back to life. And he could have looked at Martha just like last week. He could have looked at Mary and said, listen, it's going to be okay. In a matter of mere seconds, I am going to make all of this better. All of your pain and all of your hurt and all of your struggle will be no more. I am going to make it all okay. I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Everybody's going to celebrate and everybody's going to believe in me and it's going to be awesome. But he says none of that. He just lets her and all of her hurt be there and says, I promise that if you trust me, you will see God's glory. And the reason for that is this. And the third thing I want you to see is this. It's because the raising of Lazarus is not the apex of the miracle. Lazarus and the raising of Lazarus was the vehicle by which we see the glory of God. Most of us think the apex of the story is Lazarus being raised from the dead. The apex of the story actually is that Lazarus becomes a vehicle by which we see God's glory on full display. Lazarus is going to die again. He's human. Jesus is going to raise him only 
so that in a matter of weeks or months or years or whenever it is, Lazarus has another human death and dies. The culmination of this miracle is not that Lazarus breathes air again. The culmination of this miracle is that God has used Lazarus as a vehicle to show you his glory. Oftentimes our pain and our struggle and our hurt, as real as they may be, as painful as they may be, are vehicles by which God is going to put his glory on full display if we believe in who he says he is and what he has already promised our hearts. Listen to the prayer he says in front of all these people. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe. So he says, basically, Father, listen, this is not for me and you. I know that you hear me. You hear me all the time. I believe that you are the Father who has sent me, and I know in confidence that you hear me. But I'm going to pray this out loud so that every person standing here, Mary and Martha included, will believe that you have sent me and your glory will be on full display. Jesus' desire was not that Lazarus' heart beat again. His desire was that they would believe and see the glory of God. If you look back at verse 25 where we just came from, when Jesus encounters Martha, he says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever believes in in me will, uh, will live and never die. Do you believe this? Jesus' desire was that we would believe because believing in him has life. The end goal for Jesus was not that Lazarus walked again. That was temporary. Lazarus will die again. That comfort that comes from seeing him come out of the tomb, the celebrations, the joy, the the way that Mary and Martha probably wrapped their arms around him and what they talked about for years to come, all of that was temporary. Because Lazarus and Mary and Martha and every mourner in the room or in the tomb area is going to die. But Jesus knows that if they believe in him and that he was sent by God and that he is who he says he was, then there would be no more death. So Lazarus is the vehicle by which we get to see God's glory. And Jesus was concerned that you would believe in him because that was bigger than the temporary. If you believe that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, that's fine. But if you believe that Jesus was sent by God, Savior of the world, that raised Lazarus from the dead, that was life-giving. So we see that Jesus is still moved to anger, right? He offers Mary in her sort of butt-lord comments, right? Her lack of faith. He offers her a firm rebuke that's filled with an incredible promise, right? And then we see that Jesus is, of course using Lazarus as a vehicle by which we can see the glory of God on full display. And then the final thing I want you to see, and we'll kind of wrap things up a little bit, is I want you to see that Jesus speaks with this clear and direct and authoritative voice, and it's really the voice of God. So as he says that prayer out loud, right, he says, Father, I know that you hear me, and he says all those kind of things. When he had said this in verse 43, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. This was not a suggestion. We not serve a God of suggestion. God did not speak into that tomb. Hey, Lazarus, I know you're dead, but uh, if you could do this now, it'd really help me out because I got a lot of people watching. So if you want to, come on out. That'd be really great. There's none of that. Jesus speaks with this clear and authoritative voice that is the voice of God. Lazarus had no choice in the matter. 
He didn't get to decide whether or not he's going to walk out of that tomb. When Jesus spoke, blood pumped through the veins of a dead man, raised him to life, and Lazarus walked out of that tomb because it was the very voice of God that speaks life. It was authoritative and it was direct. The reason I want you to see this is because we do not serve a God who is a God of suggestion on things in your life. He is not suggesting that we surrender to him. He's not suggesting that we worship and obey him. He is a God of authority. He's not your bro or your homeboy or your boy. He is the God of the universe whose scripture talks about being the great I am, a, ma- a mystery full of wonder and awe, powerful, the judge of all the earth, who people trembled at his presence. The God whose very, our very stars hold in the balance because he holds them together. The nucleus of all the universe is held by the very breath of God. And that God has authority over life and death. And he can speak life and blood into the heart of a dead person. This is not the God that says, hey, if you will, I'd like for you to kind of follow me. This is a God who calls the dead to life. See, most of us want a God who will suggest things into our life, and as long as it complies with where I'm going or what I'm thinking, then I love that God. But the moment that God calls me out of any moment of comfort or into something where I have to walk into the unknown or trust him or anything that costs me at all, all of a sudden I'm not sure I want to follow that God because culturally that God is not attractive. But Lazarus has zero say in the matter. The God of the universe spoke with authoritative life and he walked out of that tomb. Why I say that is because this, God is doing things in your life. He's calling you to things. He's speaking things to you. He has promised you things. Scripture is very clear about the things that he's promised you, that he will never leave you nor forsake you, never abandon you, that he will cover you and clothe you more than the lilies are in the field. He tells us not to worry about a single day of your life but to trust him, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, right? All of these things God has told you and promised you, and they are not suggestions. He's not saying, if you can only, you will. He's saying, trust me. And the call of a follower of Christ is to actually die to ourselves and do the things that God has said. That's the actual call of a follower of Jesus, It's not what I think or what I believe or what I want, but what you want for all of your glory. And the last thing I want you to see after those kind of four little pieces there is I want you to see how much this story mirrors our own salvation in Jesus Christ. I mean, look, Lazarus is dead. He's not merely asleep. Four days, the sisters were afraid that his body was so in decay that it was going to have a horrible odor. He was absolutely 100% totally and completely dead. And so much that they had wrapped him in all these clothes and spices and linens. They had placed it over him. They had rolled this giant stone in so that the, the animals and the people didn't either steal his body or tear it apart. He was dead. And much like his physical condition, Lazarus' spiritual condition, like ours, is completely and totally dead. There is nothing that Lazarus could have done to have brought himself back to life. He couldn't have been laying there dead and willed blood to pump up through his body again. He couldn't have come to a place where he says, hey, being dead ain't so great. Like, I'd like to be alive. I'm going to be alive again. He's fully dead. Completely and totally fully dead. The only way Lazarus was going to live was if the God of the universe 
called him from death to life on his own initiation with his own absolute and perfect power. Salvation, like Lazarus' physical condition, is the same. We are completely and totally spiritually dead. There is nothing you can do to will yourself to a better spiritual place out of death. Hey, I I don't think I want to be in spiritual death, so I think I'll just come to life. The Bible is extremely clear. The only way to cross the bridge from death to life, spiritual death to life, is if the God of the universe, the God who speaks with direct and clear authority over life and death, calls you from death to life, which you are not possibly able to do on your own ever takes initiation with you and says, Treb, come out. And he calls us from death to life. And in that moment, we put our faith and hope in Jesus Christ as Savior and Redeemer, the God that has called us. And the Bible clearly says, we cross from death to life. And I mention that only because this. Most of us in here are driven by a performance version of Christianity that says, if I just keep trying, God will honor my effort. And we place that in the rings around our spirituality, about our, around our salvation, and, about, and around God's love, that we think if we just try harder, right, God will see my effort and he'll reward it with something. And we attach that performance to our idea of salvation, that God will just see that I am trying. Your trying will get you nowhere. Lazarus was not going to try himself from death to life. We do not live in a performance-driven system that says, God, I have to earn your affection, your love, or my own salvation. You will do nothing, nothing, not one single thing, but that God's incredible, amazing grace while you were dead will rescue the person of Jesus Christ and we put our faith and trust and hope in him. And at that moment, we cannot be loved more or less by God ever. God's love is complete. And he says to us, if you just believe me, you will see God's glory. You will see my glory. Most of us have placed our faith and hope in Jesus. We have gone from life to death and we are sitting in the place that Martha's sitting where we believe with our whole heart that Jesus is Lord, but every part of our soul doesn't trust him. God has given us the promise, every promise. And the call to follow her Christ is to just believe him, right? And if we do, God's not gonna, like Napoleon Dynamite, Pedro, is not gonna make all your wildest dreams come true, right? God will show you the full glory of God. And I don't know about you, but I've, I've longed for the full glory of myself. I've longed for the things that I want to see in the way in which I want to see them. And when I've seen them, they are, they're not as good as I thought they would be. It means there's always another problem and always another something. Everything I thought I needed, I never really needed. Everything is just always something else when it's buried in my own desires. What I long for is to see the glory of God on full display. My heart is that all of us, that would be our collective desire, right? God, I want to believe you and I want to see your glory on full display. I know that you're angry at sin and death and I know that I have a hard time trusting you even though I believe in who you say you are. 
So God, rebuke my heart and remind me of the promise that you've made me, that if I trust you and believe you, which you've already told me, all the promises you've already told me, if I believe them, I will see your glory. And Lord, help me exchange my desire to see the temporary, the material, the comforts of safety over the incredible, miraculous glory of God, right? Because that's the great tension. And that in all that, you can use any situation or circumstance in my life as a vehicle for your glory because I believe that your glory is bigger than all of it. And then help me live in a way that responds to your clear, direct, and authoritative voice, the very voice of God, with fear and reverence and awe and obedience, that you are the one that calls me from life to death, and you are the one that sets me forth. It should change the way that we think about worship. It should change the way that we think about everything that if we believe these things to be true, that God is essentially saying to us, have I not already told you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God, that that will be the heartbeat and call of us as followers of Christ and as the church. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you that your word is perfect and timeless, that it is authoritative and direct and clear, and that it calls us to something so much bigger and better than whatever this temporary things that I think I want or the world tells me I should need. Those are so weak. I have exchanged your comfort with fear and anxiety. I have heard you tell me that you will provide and that you are enough for me. And I have discredited that and I have chosen my own desires instead. I have heard you make clear and authoritative and direct calls in my life that I have said to you, but Lord, I believe that you are God, but I'm just not sure I fully trust you. God, let us confess those things, repent from those things, and fully give our hearts to the God that made them. For your ways are always better. Your thoughts are always better. And Lord, that our heart may say, I want to see your glory. Lord, as we close our time in worship, we'll make those the echoes of our heart, make them truths that we speak, that we proclaim. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Let's stand together and close in worship this morning. For these four weeks, we have uh, been in the story of Lazarus. We've chosen to respond.